Well, grace to you and peace be multiplied through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's a joy to be with you, to be together in this way. It has been several years. I was asking some of the brothers how long it's been. I think it's about three years or so. And uh, since that time, we have gained a personal connection here. Um, Most of you might know that my wife, Heather, is a sister to Candace and to uh, uh, brother-in-law to Heinrich. So good to uh, have them here, a little more of a personal connection now. And uh, thank you for your invitation to, to come. I really appreciate your testimony time. I encourage you to continue that. I'm sure there are Sundays when um, you just receive a lot through that, and just through the testimony you shared this morning, I really appreciate uh, what you what you shared. We also have an open time of sharing at, at Shippensburg, but we need to cultivate that a bit to uh, to encourage more participation. So I affirm you in, in what you're doing there. This morning, I'd like us to look at one of the Psalms. It's the only Psalm with the title. A psalm of praise, or depending on your translation, a psalm of thanksgiving. Which psalm do you think that is? You're welcome to make a guess. Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Indeed it is. Structure or arrangement is important. It's important in life. When we think about how various uh, church houses or meeting places are organized, layout has meaning. So here this morning we see that there are chairs set up individually in some places, like if you would come to Shippensburg where we are, we have pews that are affixed to the floor. Uh, what does that sort of layout uh, signify or what, what could that say about a place? It could say several things, and I'm not making positive or negative observations. I'm just uh, noting that the way things are laid out um, can indicate what the focus or the the, um, purpose of something is. In this case, I'm noticing that you have the chairs set up in rows. They're all facing a certain direction. There's a center aisle. Now, why is that? Why not two aisles? Uh, why not just aisles on the side? <laughs> there are reasons for the structure, the layout of the chairs here, right? Um, and uh, I'm going to assume that the chairs are not fixed to the floor because um, you're renting the place or because you want to use the room for something else or um, it gives you some, some flexibility. Uh, Scripture is laid out with structure, and there are reasons why Scripture is laid out the way it is. So it's good for us to to know how to evaluate or to think about um, the way different passages have been put together. I'm going to assume that this marker works here. There are three main sorts of structure in Scripture. Um, the first one that we would be familiar with would be the linear structure. So you have A, you have B, you have C. Um, a lot of times you'll find this in story or narrative passages. So you think about our brother said he's reading in Acts. Much of Acts is laid out in, 
You know, they went to this town, and then they went to this town, then they went to this town, this happened, this happened, this happened. So A, B, C. Most of our devotionals, our messages tend to follow that linear format where you have this point, then you have this point, and this point, and then a conclusion. But there are other layouts or structure styles in Scripture. Another one is the parallel structure style where you have a thought, A, and then you have a thought, B. Then he comes back to the first thought, we call it A prime, and then he goes to the second thought again, B prime. And you would see this, for example, in Psalm 19.1 where he says, The heavens, that's A, Declare, that's B, the glory of God. So there's a C there. And the firmament, A prime, showeth forth, B prime, his handiwork. So it looks like maybe the psalmist is is repeating himself, and he is. He's doing that for a certain emphasis. Parallel structure is used to emphasize certain things. Then it gets even more complicated, but this is something you can understand. Uh, there's a symmetric structure. Did, were you ever reading in Scripture and you thought to yourself, this writer seems to be going in circles. He said this and this, and, this, and then, then he comes back to this again and, and this, and it, it seems cyclical, you know? Well, it could be that it's symmetric. And when you see something that's symmetric, it's going to look something like this. A, B, C... And then back to B prime, A prime. Now you can have um, odd symmetry or you can have even symmetry. So you could have um, A, B, C, C prime, B prime, A prime. You can have four part, five part, uh, seven part symmetry. Um, <clears throat> and sometimes that's a little harder maybe to, to figure out, but oftentimes... Uh, the author is driving at, if it's an odd symmetry, like a, a five-part, three-part, five-part, seven-part, the center part is the focus. So he's driving towards something, and then he's coming back from it in his structure um, with the points that follow after that center part. In an even symmetry, the um, big name for it is chiasmus, in an even chiasm, uh, typically, the first and last points are the emphasis. And so, where you would see an even symmetry, for an example, would be in Matthew 6, 24. Jesus said, uh, No man can serve two masters. That's A. B, either he will hate the one, C, or love the other. C, prime, hold to the one. B, prime, despise the other. A prime, you cannot serve God and mammon. What is Jesus' emphasis in this structure? It's the first and last parts, isn't it? Because it's an even symmetry. And so the emphasis is, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. So in our text today, in Psalm 100, the writer is using one of those three uh, structures, layouts. And so as I read it, and you're welcome to follow along. I'd like you to think about what you think the structure is he's using. Is he using linear, parallel, or symmetry? 
And we'll talk briefly about the layout near the end of this message, Lord willing. So Psalm 100, a psalm of thanksgiving. I'm reading this from the New King James Version. He says, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. So, are you ready for Turkey Day? (laughs) That's a question that somebody asked me several years ago. I'm sure you've been asked that question. Uh, Many of you have anyway. And I'd heard it used before, but for some reason at that time, it it stuck with me and it struck me uh, a little poorly. (laughs) As I thought about the implications of calling Thanksgiving Turkey Day, it has a way of diminishing the meaning of the day, doesn't it? It narrows the focus down to what I get to consume. And of course, not everybody's going to eat turkey on on Thanksgiving. A lot of people will. But um, to me, it's it's very very much a diminishing uh, description and not what the day is about. There's so much more to to a big bird on the table, isn't there, in this matter of, of Thanksgiving. And the reality is, every one of us have not just a reason, but we have so many reasons for which to be thankful when we think about all that, that God has done. So my underlying premise, my main point this morning is simply this. True Thanksgiving naturally flows to God for what He has done and for who he is. In going through this psalm, I'd like to to give four main points. First of all, consider the psalmist's call to enthusiastic praise in verses 1 and 2. He says, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. I think that's such a beautiful picture to envision what would it be like to have an entire nation, let's say the entire nation of America, Praise God together with one voice and united heart and mind. What about all of North America? What about all of the continents of the world? All the nations joined together with one voice with the joyful noise, the joyful shout to God. To hear everybody saying, we love you, God. We serve you happily. We obey you joyfully. We adore you, O Lord. I think of places like Afghanistan and North Korea and Bolivia (laughs) and all around the world joining in this sort of praise to God. A joyful shout is a call to enthusiastic praise. And as probably many of you know, that word enthusiasm comes from a Greek word which is entheos. Entheos meaning in God or in Godness. So when we are enthusiastic, it means that, could be one of two things actually, uh, we are in God or God is in us. And I think both of those, those thoughts uh, hold weight and value for us. It's appropriate to consider that. The writer of this Thanksgiving psalm is calling us to be enthusiastic, to be wholehearted. What does wholehearted worship 
look like? <clears throat> be a little scary to do this, but uh, the way technology is going, we might be able to soon accomplish something like this. I've thought different times, what would it be like to have worship meters above our heads in the midst of the worship service? And uh, <laughs> even scarier, what would it be like if uh, it would send out the general picture of you know, a thought bubble above our heads that's visible to everyone, what we're actually thinking about? Uh, you know, and if it's uh, worship for God, it's purple. And if it's thinking about work, it's green. And if it's uh, worry, it's blue. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> thank the Lord we don't have that. Uh, <laughs> but what does enthusiastic worship look like? Wholehearted worship. Well, he says it involves this noise, uh, according to the King James, or a shout. What is that? A joyful noise. What do you think when you think joyful noise? <laughs> To me, I think of a ruckus or a roar, something that's a bit uh, indistinguishable. Uh, when I think about a shout, I do think of something a little more purposeful or focused. Um, obviously, the world has its ways of celebrating and and uh, rejoicing, but this is not about the, the roar of the stadium. This is about the shout of the sanctuary. This is about God's people coming together in honor and praise to Him. I realize as Anabaptists, we tend to be fairly quiet. Um, when's the last time you got into a shouting spell? <laughs> I'm just curious. Have any of you ever been in a service where somebody or some people got into a shouting spell? Okay. All right. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the Lebanon God's Missionary Church. And so this is a little aside, but it, it uh, helps you to know where I come from. I grew up in the Brethren in Christ Church in Mifflin County. Um, and then in my late teens, early 20s, I attended Penview Bible Institute, which is the Bible school for the God's Missionary Church. They have about 50 congregations in their denomination. They are a conservative holiness group, and they most definitely believe in demonstration and in expressiveness. And if you've been in any of their services, oftentimes uh, when... A person is asked to lead in prayer, everybody uh, joins in prayer. And so there is a lot of, of that, that demonstration. I've been in services as a student when I was there at Penview where there was demonstration, there was shouting, there was uh, running of the aisles and, and things like that. I can assure you that nobody was sleeping in those services. And um, so I'm not making a, uh, a positive or negative statement about that other than to say I think uh, we could be perhaps a little more demonstrative. And if you know me, you know that um, I don't even necessarily say a, an audible amen. But I, I think there's a good place to say that and to um, give assent to the truth that is being presented. A joyful shout. And, you know, whether it's uh, personality or, or culture, I don't think we need to beat ourselves up because we're not as loud as some people are. But uh, we can recognize and value that the joyful noise is going up uh, in various places. Probably the place where we can be the noisiest with a joyful shout would be in singing and putting ourselves into a united, orderly shout, you might say. And I enjoy wholehearted church family singing. So the psalmist is telling us that praise is to be dynamic. It's directed toward God. It's uh, dominating or supposed to be dominating the peoples of the earth. Enthusiastic worship isn't just about um, shouting, though, or, or noise. It's also 
the challenge he gives us here is to serve. In verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Many people think that uh, serving God is, is a life of uh, narrowness and misery and sorrow, and yet that's, that's just one of Satan's lies, isn't it? Um, serving God is something that we get to do with wholehearted joy if we choose to do so. Um, to walk with Him is not a burden. I think it's the people who are trying to only half serve God who find it to be difficult, to find it, who find it to be drudgery. And... Um, are not willing to give themselves entirely to Him. Several years ago, my sister had the opportunity, quite a few years ago now actually, uh, to go to India, to go with a team, a missionary team there. And while she was there, she met a man named Pastor Samuel. Uh, He was a middle-aged man at that time who was overseeing a number of churches, a number of pastors. He had an orphanage that he was operating for uh, 15 or 20 children. He had a ministry to widows, where he was providing sustenance for various widows. And then he had his own family. And so you can imagine that uh, Pastor Samuel had a lot of things going on. And through my sister, I had the opportunity to connect with him then through email, through instant messaging, and to, to interact with him at various times. And one of the things that stuck out to me about Pastor Samuel was that so many times he would sign off his and, and his farewell. He would say this, Yours in his glad service. Yours in his glad service. A man that's very busy, that has a lot of responsibility, and yet he signs off with that sort of comment. Yours in his glad service. I think it's a great way to live. And I have not arrived, but that is my my goal. That is what I'm shooting toward. Uh, Incidentally, it was Heather's glad service that uh, struck the initial spark that led to us getting married. Uh, I saw her happily, gladly serving, and uh, that was was very attractive to me. I like how the Living Bible Paraphrase gives verse 2. It says, Obey Him gladly. It's talking about God. Obey God gladly. Come before Him, singing with joy. This idea that serving is obeying and obeying is serving. They work together. Um, I really believe that, that our shouting is validated by our serving. It's one thing to get all excited and all emotional, and there's a place, I believe, for that. But what does it lead to? Does it lead us to become a people who are willing to obey and to serve God gladly when we are alone? I believe that serving validates or it marks as genuine or real the uh, the joyful shout. So enthusiastic praise involves shouting and serving, Thirdly, he encourages us to sing, to come before his presence with singing. That's what we've done already this morning. If serving validates our shouting, then I would suggest that singing vitalizes or it energizes our service. Even the most mundane activities like husking corn, changing the baby's diaper yet again, taking the garbage out, traveling on a long trip in the car... (laughs) These sorts of things can receive some new life and new joy if we engage in singing. Uh, Some years ago, I was on a small uh, construction crew where I was learning learning the construction trade. And we had a job in the little town of uh, Newport in uh, 
in Perry County. And it was for an older lady named Mrs. Hench. And so I forget what all we did for her. We did a job for her. And then six months later, she asked us to come back and do some more work for her. And she said to my boss that she wanted him to send the boy who was singing. And the boss thought that that was me. Well, there were only three of us on the crew. And it didn't seem likely that the other two guys fit that bill. But I didn't really remember that I sang. I mean, to be honest, I I work and I'm usually pleasant to be around when I'm working. But I don't, I'm not necessarily a songbird, okay? <laughs> but I, I guess I was. I guess I was singing that day when we were working for Mrs. Hench. And so uh, she wanted the boy that was singing to come back. So we went back to work at her house. And usually, you know, she's an older lady. Most of the time, she sat inside watching TV. She couldn't do much. And so she just uh, spent her days watching television. Uh, but the day that we came back, she came outside to where we were. And she was just, she was standing around. And... Um, I think she was waiting for me, I guess, to start singing. I don't know. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, to my shame, I have to admit that I didn't crack my beak. I, uh, you know, I I guess I didn't feel like I could perform on demand. And uh, (laughs) she went back inside and started watching TV again. So, um, but uh, she did make a comment that stuck with me. And she said this, she said, uh, if somebody is singing... That means their work is not a drudgery. And that's true, isn't it? If, if somebody's able to drum up a song somewhere, <laughs> I've heard my wife do this different times, and she's engaged in the menial tasks of motherhood, singing away, uh, that has a way of vitalizing and energizing whatever it is that we have to do. Um, some years ago, we had a man in our church whose wife passed away after 50 years of marriage. And um, I remember the day of the funeral then and of the graveside service of um, how we were filling in the grave there at Shippensburg. And he also was filling in that grave uh, with tears running down his cheeks. But we were working together as a congregation in carrying this out and singing the song, Trust and Obey. Trust and obey. And what a beautiful picture in the midst of one of the most difficult things of life to be able to sing. And it doesn't mean that we feel great and we feel wonderful, but we offer up our voice in song to God and and uh, to see that uniting of major loss and glad trust made an impact on me. Come before God's presence with singing. Um, this is the idea that Eugene Peterson carries in his paraphrase of scripture called the message. Um, It's a little different, perhaps, there in verses 1 and 2. How many of you have read from the message at least once in your life? You've read from the message, okay? Is there anybody that brought the message to church today? Okay. Uh, I won't make any comments on that. It is uh, an interesting paraphrase to read, to to get his thoughts. He renders verses 1 and 2 like this. He says, uh, On your feet now, applaud God. Bring a gift of laughter. Sing yourselves into his presence. And that's the phrase that sticks out to me. Sing yourselves into his presence. Um, if we feel like, you know, where is God? Is he close? Is he far? Um, the opportunity we have through singing to invite him to come near. There's a story that comes out of uh, Eastern Communist Europe several 
several years ago, probably decades ago now, was talking about a Christian who was imprisoned for his faith. And he, he was hungry, he was cold, uh, regularly he was being interrogated. And um, at one point he was put back into solitary confinement again. He was again, you know, lonely and struggling. And um, he remembered the words that Jesus gave about rejoicing under persecution. And he certainly didn't feel like it. But um, he decided that he would just get up and start dancing around his cell, praising God and and shouting out to him. And uh, his antics soon gained the attention of the guard. And when the guard came to check on him, he was sure that the Christian had gone crazy. And um, so he decided to go and bring the Christian some cheese and a loaf of bread because the guards had been instructed to treat the crazy ones nicely. (laughs) And so once again, God had provided, and the thought struck this Christian prisoner. He said to himself, it is better to be a fool in Christ than to be a, quote, wise man who is foolishly angry about things that cannot change. So the call of the psalmist is for enthusiastic praise. Someone has said that the people who do not want any emotion in their religion do not want any religion at all, for there is not true religion without emotion. A religion without emotion is like a river without water. It is dry. Now, the psalmist does something a little unexpected here. He gives the call for worship before he gives the cause for worship. And I think that uh, he is purposeful in doing this. In this first section, we are called to enthusiastic praise. Notice, secondly, that we are challenged to, in verse 3, experiential praise. He's calling us to experience, to know some very specific things. It's one thing to praise God with our mouths. And it's another thing to, to have this personal knowledge of who He is, to have experienced Him, to know Him in our hearts. And this is what verse 3 is telling us in in that verse there. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. This verse is the foundation of our praise. It's the cause for that previous call that He gave to us. Our thanksgiving has a basis in fact. It's It's rooted in the fact of who God is. And it's not just a head knowledge, but it's thanks that is flowing from this, this intimate knowledge of God. And so it's important for us to know several things experientially with God. First of all, to know that He exists. And we know this, of course, from Hebrews eleven six, where it says that true faith must believe that God is. Believe that He is. Several years ago, I was talking with a man who uh, said to me, he said, My daughter is an atheist. He was very unhappy about this this uh, matter. Uh, he said that she didn't believe in God. But as I talked with his daughter then and, and discussed where she was, uh, I found that she did believe. It's just that she wasn't sure uh, what to believe about God. That's a very different place to be. Um, she wasn't an atheist, but more perhaps of an agnostic. If we know that God is, that's a starting place for faith. 
to know that he is. But uh, that will only take us so far because, of course, we recognize we need to know even more. We need to know God himself. Matthew Henry says, Know what God is in himself and what he is to you. Knowledge is the mother of devotion and of all obedience. Blind sacrifices will never please a seeing God. We must know that he exists, but we also need to know that he created us. Because verse 3 goes on to say, It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Many people today consider themselves to be self-made people. I've done it myself. In fact, the, the cultural mindset is that life is a buffet. I go through life and I choose a little bit of this, a little bit of Buddha, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of the Bhagavad Gita, and I mix it together in my own concoction. This is my religion. This is who I am. I get to choose my own life, my own values, you might say. And you would think that that sort of mindset would lead to a lot of liberation and a lot of freedom. But interestingly enough, it hasn't, has it? Uh, People are more confused than ever now that they've been liberated. They're not even sure if they're a man or a woman. Or is it some other option of the many supposed varieties that are out there? In reality... When we choose to identify with reality and live with the grain of the universe, as somebody has said, uh, when you try to live against the grain of the universe, they say you get splinters. So when you choose to live with the grain of the universe, that is where true freedom and liberation and identity come from. In acknowledging and living reality. Harawas Uh, who is a professor, he made this observation. He said, freedom lies not in creating our lives, but in learning to recognize our lives as a gift. We do not receive our lives as though they were a gift, but rather our lives simply are a gift. We do not exist first and then receive from God a gift. The great magic of the gospel is providing us with the skills to acknowledge our life as created without resentment and regret. Such skills must be embodied in a community of people across time, constituted by practices such as baptism, preaching, and communion, which become the means for us to discover God's story for our lives. In other words, he's saying, I figure out who I am when I figure out whose I am. Capital W-H-O-S-E. And I think that's why there's so much confusion and uncertainty in the world today. Because once you get rid of the great who, God, it leads to all sorts of uncertainty about who really am I as a person or as a creature. So there is no such thing as a self-made man or woman. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we release ourselves from such a tremendous burden. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We also need to know that he claims us. He claims us as his own. As the psalmist says there in that last part of verse 3, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Not only did God take the initiative for bringing us into existence, but he also takes upon himself the responsibility 
for our care. (laughs) We get the joy and delight of running around in his pasture, eating the good things, drinking the delicious things, and experiencing his provision. You know, there was not once in this past year, nor in my life to this point, where I've had to go and beg for food. I'm pretty confident that most of you didn't find yourself in that position either in the last year. And so we think about the provision of God. We think about how we have experienced his care in the thousands of miles traveled, in all of the means of of, uh, grace that have been offered to us. Uh, Mercy after mercy has been poured out upon us, we who are his flock. What a blessing that is. And so we think about what the psalmist is calling us here to do. He's calling us to offer to God out of our experience the praise to God for He is worthy. Now, people go through life and they experience a lot of the same things. But isn't it interesting how two people can experience almost the very same things but they see very different things? You know this is true. What it has to do with is the mindset or the set of our attitude, does it not? You see, we all find what we're looking for. That's how we've been created. And so it's simply a matter of what is the direction of my heart as to what I will find or pull out of each experience. Henry Ward Beecher wrote, Uh, probably 150, 200 years ago, he said, if one should give me a dish of sand and tell me that there were particles of iron in it, I might look for them with my eyes, search for them with my clumsy fingers and be unable to detect them. But let me take a magnet and sweep through it and how it would draw to itself the most invisible particles by the mere power of attraction. He says, the unthankful heart, like my finger in the sand, discovers no mercies. But let the thankful heart sweep through the day as the magnet finds the iron, so it will find in every hour some heavenly blessings. Only the iron in God's sand is gold. (laughs) And so he's likening it to this picture of this bowl of sand with filings or iron particles in it. As we go through life, what do we see? What do we get out of life? Do we get out of life the difficult things, the negative things, the thankless things, the horrible things? (laughs) Or do we see the blessings, the graces, the opportunities, the beauties, the things that God has offered to us in a thousand kindnesses? There was an older lady... I think uh, in her 60s, who made this observation several years ago. She said, Christians who are not by nature optimists may have to work a little at becoming so. Here is how you do that. By a conscious, constant cultivation of thanksgiving. This works magic in changing a bad eye, quote-unquote, to a clear eye. And you'll be astounded at how much better the world looks. Try it and you will sit before a blank sheet of paper and complain that you have nothing good to put on your list. And then you will come up with 25. When you get better at it, you will not only have the good things on your Thanksgiving list, but the bad things and disappointments too. For you will start to see how these bad things were the very ones God used to mature you. 
I hate to think of what my life would be now if I had been cursed with only pleasant things. What a thanksgiving list. True thanksgiving naturally flows to God for who he is and for what he has done. Notice thirdly in this psalm what I would call exalting praise. The idea that the psalmist here is calling us to engage in praise that magnifies or lifts up God and who he is. And really, in truth, is there any way that we can make more of God than he is? Can we magnify him beyond his reality? (laughs) I think it's virtually impossible. And yet I also think it's true that we cannot make more of him than what we know. And so it goes back to that importance of having that experiential knowledge of him. Keep pressing into who he is. In verse 4, the psalmist says here, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Here we are exalting him. Be thankful to him and bless his name. There's a movement that's taking place as we enter in the gates, as we go deeper and press further out into the courts. And the way that that takes place is through praise, thanksgiving, adoration. Are these things that we can do half-heartedly? Can we praise God, thank God, adore God half-heartedly? I'm ashamed to say that I have done that or tried to all too often. Um, My thought bubble above my head would not have looked very healthy. (laughs) In fact, I wonder that God probably doesn't desire no praise rather than a half-hearted, distracted, worried sort of thanksgiving. The psalmist calls us to enter his presence gladly, gratefully, to glorify his name. That's my desire. I think that's your desire, to be a glad person, a grateful person. In fact, I ask myself, maybe you can help me out, have I ever met a glad person who wasn't a grateful person? And have I ever met a grateful person who wasn't a glad person? I think they go together. I think you can hardly have one without the other. They're working together to exalt the Lord. And here in this psalm, I believe the writer is giving us what you might call the proper etiquette for entering into the very throne room of God. What is the acceptable way to enter before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Um, My father-in-law, Heather and Candace's father, uh, John D. Martin, has argued for a long time now that... When we have our personal devotions, we need to start off with singing. (laughs) You would expect John D. to emphasize singing, of course. Um, But I think he does have a a point that when we come before royalty, has anybody ever had the opportunity to to enter in before royalty or even before a governor? Or um, Years ago in my late teens, uh, I was at the farm show, and uh, the governor usually travels through the farm show to check out the the uh, exhibits. And uh, so I wanted to meet the governor. Tom Ridge was the governor at that time. And so I was collecting autographs, and I wanted his autograph. And so I walked up to his security detail, and I said, would it be okay if I speak to the governor? That's fine. You know, just just uh, address him directly, and he'll talk to you. And 
And uh, so that's my claim to fame. I, that's my, my, I've never been to you know, visit Queen Elizabeth or, you know, now it's King Charles. Um, but there's a sense in which when we come into the presence of somebody in authority, we want to behave with proper decorum. We don't just bound into, um, you know, the, the throne room or uh, I was called in for jury duty the other week. I did not bound into the courtroom and, and uh, at, you know, Asked the judge to please have me excused. I respectfully addressed her, said, Your Honor, uh, I do not feel that I can serve in this way. Um, this is what we're seeing, I believe, here in this psalm. We're called to have proper etiquette, if you will, coming in before the God of the universe. This goes along with Eugene Peterson's idea that we sing ourselves into the presence of God. When we come into to the presence of royalty, we bring a gift with us. In this case, we bring the gift of song. Um, in Peterson's The Message, he renders verse 4 like this. He, uh, he, he has it, Enter with the password, thank you. Now that seems a little informal to me, but uh, <laughs> that idea of gratefulness, that when we come before God, we're not whining and grumbling and complaining. We're grateful. We're happy. We're, that's what I want my children to be. <laughs> we have a long ways to go with that, by the way, but... Uh, that when they come into my presence, it's not, it's gratefulness. It's, uh, it's an exalting type of, of attitude. So we're coming before him with thanksgiving. We're entering through his gates, pressing on into his court. We're saying, thank you. Exalting praise. And then fourth and finally, we see what I would call enumerating praise. I know that's a big word. Simply means counting out there in verse five. Uh, to name things one by one. This is what we see the psalmist doing in limited part here. He's, he's listing off three things, three causes for why he has called us to exalt God. Obviously, if we're going to count off our blessings, uh, we would be a long time at it. But it's good to mention a couple. Uh, first of all, the psalmist talks about his good character. The character of God. For the Lord is good. What would it be like if the God of all gods wasn't good? That'd be awful. I, I wouldn't want to be alive. I wouldn't want to serve Him. I'm so glad that the God of the universe is good. But what do we mean by that? Somebody said this, it's easy to call God good, but what does that mean? In modern English, there's a tendency to equate good with my wishes. If we read Genesis 1, we shall come to the conclusion that there, that there, good means conforming with God's purposes. When God called everything good, it conformed with his purposes. God is good in the sense that he never falls short of his revealed character. Praise God for that. He never falls short of his revealed character. That's the kind of God we serve. Fabulous. And the implication is that we too are good when we live out the ways that he has purposed us to live. The psalmist also enumerates his everlasting mercy. His mercy is everlasting. And the word mercy here in the Hebrew is the hesed, which uh, is often translated as his steadfast love, his unfailing love, his enduring love. Uh, the King James in many places calls it his loving kindness. It's a beautiful uh, character quality of who God is. I've been 
certainly the undeserving recipient, just even this past week, of many of God's loving kindnesses to me. What about you? The third quality the psalmist counts out about God is his enduring truth. His truth endures to all generations. God will not lie to us. We can take him at his word. What was true 6,000 years ago is still true today. And what is true today, if time holds out, will still be true 6,000 years into the future. We can take him at his word. This is just the beginning of a list of character qualities of who our God is. It'd be interesting to elicit from you what you think about, what it is about God's character that has stuck out to you recently, what it is that has been most meaningful to you. One of the things that has blessed me is to, to experience and to see his providential work in my life, just in the little things that he brings in and the ways that he, he works in me. His providence has been a real blessing to me. All right, perhaps you figured out the the arrangement of this psalm, this structure, as we've gone through it, but I'd like to hear from you. What do you think the structure of the psalm is? Is it linear, parallel, or symmetrical? You won't get a grade on this, so feel free to take a stab at it. Symmetrical? Okay. I'm, uh, this is not original with me because I'm not that smart. There's actually an entire Old Testament sort of commentary um, by David Dorsey where he breaks down the various structures, not of every chapter of the Old Testament, but of a lot of them. And so... I'm drawing from his work. He would say that it's parallel in the sense that the psalmist in those first two verses is calling us to praise God, to thank him. Then in the next uh, verse or so, he gives the reason. Then he jumps back in verse four, gives a call again. And then in verse five, he gives the reason or reasons for that call. Now, of course, that's a very different mindset from how we tend to think in Western culture. We do tend to be more linear, um, but there's there's great value in that uh, parallel structure. It also should cause us to ask the question, why would the psalmist do that? Now, this is a bit speculative because the psalmist doesn't say why he structured Psalm 100 this way, but it does seem a little unusual to start off with the call to do something before giving the reason for doing it, and then to do that twice. What do you think might be the reason for that? And like I said, this is speculation, so we can't even begin to grade this, but I think there's at least one possible reason why he chose this sort of structure. I'll just throw out my thought. My thought is that uh, we are called to do certain things in life oftentimes without understanding why. But the understanding will come in the doing. Uh, The Hebrew idea of wisdom was that it comes by precept. In other words, 
uh, it's not that I spend time explaining to you why you should do it. Rather, I expect you as an elder or as a parent to do something and you will gain the understanding in the midst of doing it. I think there's great value in that, especially in a culture that's very individualistic and, and, and people are saying, well, God hasn't spoken to me about that yet. Well, okay, we want to be careful not to just blindly do things, but on the other hand, there are realities, there are situations in which we don't understand why God has called us to do certain things until we actually do it. I found that to be true in my own life. Um, the whole thing of living in intentional brotherhood. I was not raised with intentional brotherhood. But it was as I have yielded myself to a bigger brotherhood, I realize, oh, there is such value. There's such importance. There's such wisdom in connecting and being committed in membership to a brotherhood. So it's possible that the, the psalmist was saying, or indicating, uh, whether we feel like it or not, we need to praise God. <laughs> the, the, the reasons will come later. The challenge, the command, the call comes first, followed then by the understanding. In closing, I'm sure that this Thanksgiving, uh, coming up, Lord willing, will be much more to you than Turkey Day. Thankfully. <laughs> Our Creator is so much greater and bigger, of course, than His creation and deserves our enthusiastic experiential praise as we exalt Him and as we enumerate His goodness toward us. And I hope that you'll take the time to do that in this coming week, uh, some time alone, maybe this afternoon or sometime during this week, to, to honor Him, to consider what He has done for you. True thanksgiving naturally flows to God for who He is, and for what he has done. Thank you.